Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 206, recorded for March 29th, 2023. The TCP podcast ponders security copilot or vaporware. You decide. Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan, and we have a guest tonight, Matthew Cohn. How's it going, Matt? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. It's been a bit. It's been a hot minute since you've been on the show. I think maybe a year and a half, something like that. That seems about right. It was pre-baby, so I mean, everything is a time warp after baby, so mm-hmm. it's hard to recall yeah, it, now. Yeah. It's been a long year, but a good year, so I can't <laughs> complain too much. The best of times and the worst of times, parenthood. Mm-hmm. Remember how old you are now because you'll, you'll be forever that old. I, I yeah. stopped counting as soon as I had kids. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, mine are turning uh, 14 and 12 this year. And uh, I don't know how it's possible because I haven't aged a day since they were born. So, mm-hmm. yep, perfect. Well, uh, we have uh, news as always. Um, and, you know, the thing about Matt here now is I, I sort of, I sort of set him up because I knew we wanted him to be on the show more often. And so then my CTO friend called and was like, hey, I've got a gig for a cloud person. Are you interested? And I said, well, what cloud are you going to? And she said, Azure. And I said, well, hell no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I said, but I know a guy who's looking for work. And that was Matt. And Matt is now joined her and now is an Azure expert. So it's a whole new perspective that you can bring to the podcast tonight that you're an Azure expert and can tell us all the amazingness of Azure uh, because, you know, all of us have all sworn off Azure. So, like, we've, we've taken the bridge too far to GCP from AWS and are suffering our consequences. Uh, and so, you know, we're learning our, our things, but you've, you're on the other side. And so I, it's an interesting perspective that we've never really had as someone who actually used Azure in production every day of their lives. For the last See, you've sworn off. I've sworn at Azure daily. <laughs> so it's a slightly different perspective. Um, no, it's definitely a, a big transition because a lot of the key things that you just expect to be there after eight years and helping Amazon write their exams and knowing the ins and outs and limits of it are just not there or are completely different fundamentals that you have to kind of rebuild. But the nice thing about it is all the same core concepts still apply. So, you know, making sure things are highly available in multiple zones and multi-region DR and making sure that, you know, all those fundamental key concepts of how you build your pipelines and everything to deliver in a truly, you know, CICD fashion are all still the same. So same, uh, same thing, new tools. Get to learn something new. Keep telling yourself that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way I get through it every day. <laughs> That's how we get through GCP every day too. So. <laughs> uh, there's gotta be, there's gotta be positive things, right? Like I'll, I'll find them someday. I just, I haven't found it quite yet. Servers. Not so I will say the, the actual, you know, Microsoft technologies do work extremely well there. So, you know, running Microsoft SQL Server, you know, they've done a really good job and keep it really up to date and keep it running very optimally. Um, and they do things that Amazon can't do. Like you can essentially over provision stuff, you know, in the same way you did um, with, you know, Kubernetes, you know, get loading more compute than you actually have or with VMware and your on-prem virtual machines overloading it. So there's a lot of different things that you can do. So it does make sense. Uh, if you are a very heavy Microsoft stack, you can get away a lot with, a, you know, a couple of extra things that Microsoft can do because they, you know, own the whole product lifecycle for it. I'll take your word for it. I mean, I have Azure too, but <laughs> I, don't, I try not to ask too many questions because it just makes me raise my eyebrows. You're better off. Just you're better off. I'm trying to be positive here. Yeah. 
that's a different team. I mean, they're my team, but they're still a different team. <laughs> and they're in the UK, so I don't hear I don't hear their complaints as much as I hear the GCP ones. <laughs> so uh, it's one of those things. All right, well, let's get into it. Uh, Terraform Enterprise has several updates this week from HashiCorp. Uh, they have been rapidly innovating on their cloud version of Terraform. Uh, and so it's nice to see those things finally make it back into the Terraform Enterprise for those of you who were fooled into paying bajillions of dollars to HashiCorp. Uh, so some of the new features uh, for you is a fresh new UI that's not so fresh if you use the cloud version because it's just a copy of that, uh, released using the Helios design system. They have a new cross-organizational provider, which shares uh, sharing allows you to share via private registry across the organization, just as you could with a module. There's a new abstraction layer called Projects, allowing you to organize and manage groups of related workspaces within Terraform Enterprise organizations. Projects allow an admin to create logical ownership boundaries and enable teams to safely manage their workspace. Uh, GitHub AppAuth provides an enhanced integration between Terraform Enterprise and GitHub.com and GitHub Enterprise instances. And unlike the OAuth-based auth, which used a single highly privileged service account, the GitHub app operates using it under its own identity while supplying permissions of individual users when interacting with repos, which is really good. Uh, there's a new improved run pipeline model known as the TFE Task Worker, which is based on the TFC agent runtime. This allows Terraform Enterprise to deliver highly anticipated features such as OPA support, dynamic provider credentials, and drift detection. And OPA support is exactly what you thought. They're getting rid of Sentinel. No, they're not. They're yeah. give you OPA <laughs> and Sentinel, mm-hmm. so you can use either or uh, or both of them. Uh, the dynamic provider support allows the auth model to leverage the OpenID Connect to generate short-lived credentials to your Terraform runs, eliminating the risk of inherent static long-lived credentials, which is super cool. And drift detection, allowing you to track deviations from your Terraform code and what those people did in ClickOps to mess up your code. So there you go. That's all in Terraform Enterprise now, apparently. Yeah, I'm surprised how long drift detection took to make it from cloud to the the enterprise product, just because I was still using the enterprise product when that was announced for cloud use. And, you know, it was months and months and months and months, if not years later. Um, So like it's, you know, I guess that's always sort of the challenge when using, um, you know, an enterprise product, it's going to be slow and, you're going to have to wait a long time for features that you really want. What's the difference between drift detection and just running a plan and seeing what's going to change? That, that is what their drift detection is. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just runs every so often and yells at you when it, when it's yeah. in, when there's, someone's done something. So it's an automatic plan, basically. Okay. Pretty much. Uh, the, the reality is that if you are a SaaS company that decided they want to have an enterprise on-premise product, uh, the paths that now diverge from continuous delivery, continuous integration to support an on-premise thing, it's actually a very complicated use case. Um, I've worked at a couple of companies that did it. I've known several people in the industry who do that <laughs> as part of the, you know, and it's like a whole team of dedicated people who just, you know, their job is to take the SaaS version once a year and turn it into a on-prem product mm-hmm. um, and rip out all of the special sauce and all of the uniqueness and make it into something consumable. Uh, it's actually a pretty complicated lift in many organizations, so it's uh, not surprised to see that the Terraform Enterprise roadmap has kind of slowed down in comparison to the cloud because they get real-time feedback there. Um, so that doesn't surprise me, actually, as much as maybe it's surprised you. Well, and just like anything, enterprise customers are slow to you know roll out changes and update, right? So it's it can be tricky to offer these things quickly and then cause problems for those enterprise customers. Whereas if you're you're managing it as part of your platform, you can do uh, much more. You know, you can feature flag and do you know canary deployments, and you have a lot more control over some of these things. Especially when you can uh, guinea pig all your customers with your cloud version. So, mm-hmm. 
All right, let's move on to uh, AWS. AWS had a couple of things this week. Uh, we talked about a few weeks ago on our cloud migration journey episode about all the tools about the AWS application migration service. Uh, and they've added three new features this week that'll help you move your workloads in a more time, uh, less time intensive way, uh, less error prone and uh, more automated. So first up is the feature import and export. You can use app migration service to import your source environment inventory list to the service from a CSV file. Ooh. You can also export your source server inventory for reporting purposes, offline reviews and updates, and integration with other tools and AWS services, and perform bulk configuration changes by re-importing the inventory list, which is a great way to mess up your entire environment. <laughs> server migration metrics uh, dashboard. This new dashboard can help simplify migration project management by providing an aggregated view of the migration lifecycle status as well as additional post-launch modernization actions. Uh, with this update, Application Migration Service added eight additional predefined post-launch actions, things like convert your SQL license from this type of license to uh, Amazon licensing or other types of things that you may want to do in the cloud. I feel like the post-launch migration action items are always really good and then always get ignored because you've successfully moved and no one cares about anything else for at least two years until they look at their bill and go, oh God, we moved and we forgot to do all these post-action items. And why is our bill so expensive now? Yeah, migration projects are never measured you know, past that getting into the cloud, right? So it's always like, there's your success metric and then moving on to something new because you've been doing with migration for three years. I would like to see like some of the, the, the internals on like some of those things, like replacing the licenses. Is that, you know done at the OS layer? Is it automated or is it like prepackaged for you? Or is it just sort of tracking these things as part of license manager and, and reporting on it? You are asking for a lot of a lot of information from a press release from Amazon at this moment. But uh, it does say convert MS SQL license. You can easily convert Windows MS SQL BYOL to an AWS license using the Windows MS SQL license conversion action. And the launch process includes checking the SQL edition if it's enterprise standard or web and using the right AMI with the right billing code. I think what scares me more is the Windows Update version that they have an SSM run book that will just do the upgrade for you. I feel like that definitely will never end well. Yeah, yeah upgrade Windows version. Yeah, that what could go wrong? I'm going to go right from 2012 to 2022. Everything will be fine. Yeah, uh, no big deal. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it'll go well. I think migrating licenses is pretty handy because previously you couldn't get the SQL Server license without booting up one of their own AMIs. So being able to bring your own image in, I can't imagine why you'd want to do that versus migrating the data. But um, Well, again, this is the application migration service. So, I mean, it potentially is taking a backup of your SQL database on-prem and then it's going to move it into one of their RDS you know, licensed options or EC2 licensed options. So, I mean, again, it's how much of it is doing, I mean, it says a post-launch action, but I don't actually know if it's actually post-launch post or is it post-sort of launch. <laughs> so it's weird. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Well, uh, in a feature that I thought they announced forever ago, ALBs <laughs> have uh, now support TLS 1.3. So this enables you to optimize the performance of your backend application servers while helping to keep your workload secure. TLS 1.3 on ALB works by offboarding encryption and decryption of TLS traffic from app servers to the load balancer. And TLS 1.3 is optimized for performance and security by using one round-trip TLS handshake and only supporting ciphers that provide perfect forward security. I will submit the only reason I knew that this feature did not exist was about two months ago. One of the companies I advised for was like, we need to upgrade everything to TLS 1.3. And I was like, okay, just go update. And they, after like a half an hour of 
looking through documentation, I was like, oh, it's not supported here yet, but supported on CloudFront. So it's nice to see that they've now made these, this run in parity. Yeah, you could at least have removed the insecure ciphers and ensured forward secrecy with TLS 1.2, but you don't get the advantage of the, the past handshake. So interesting, it took so long. It is interesting, it took so long, especially considering you know, how much focus has been on security and particularly adoption of TLS 1.3 has been a pretty big industry push in general. So I'm surprised it's actually not come up in their, their SOC or ISO compliance as well. They probably just referred you to using NLB or something and said, that's how you solve it for now. Mm-hmm. Or just, yeah, the, the regular elastic load balancer. Yeah, the classic load balancer, is that what they call it now? Mm. Yeah. The CLB? CLB, yeah. All right, let's move to GCP, who had nothing of interest this week because they're still trying to get Bard to work properly. Um, <laughs> but uh, so they announced that the uh, shared agenda for responsible AI progress because they failed to beat the market. So now they're going to try to regulate the market by uh, telling you all the ways that they're trying to make AI progress to be more responsible. Uh, and so they talk about their AI experiments with Bard and tools like Palm and Makersuite APIs and the growing number of services across the entire AI ecosystem have sparked excitement about AIs, transformative potential, and concern about misuses. Uh, Google uh, then goes into this article to talk about shared agenda for responsible AI progress and being one of the first people to uh, publish anything around shared responsible AI in 2018 or 2008, even uh, quite a ways away. Uh, they, they highlight one of the things to think about when you're thinking about the future for these tools is a simple thought experiment by James Manica at Google. Uh, it's the year 2050. AI has turned out to be hugely beneficial to society. What happened? What opportunities did we realize? And what problems did we solve? And then by taking that data, you can kind of then basically figure out what they think are the easy win opportunities that potentially could use responsible AI. And so they talk about uh, being one of the first organizations to set those standards and now points to what they believe are required for any public AI policy which, uh, number one, is build on existing regulation, recognizing that many regulations that apply to privacy, safety, or other public purposes already apply fully to AI applications. That should continue to be adapted and addressed. Number two, adopt a proportion of risk-based framework focused on applications, recognizing that AI is a multi-purpose technology that calls for customized approaches and differentiated accountability among developers, deployers, and users. Promote an interoperable approach to AI standards and governance, recognize the need for internal alignment, uh, number four, ensure parity and expectations between non-AI and AI systems. Recognize that even imperfect AI systems can improve on existing processes, which means that the racist ones are not bad, folks. Uh, that's what they're saying. <laughs> and then number five, promote transparency that facilitates accountability, empowering users, and building trust. So, uh, I mean, you had to, Azure fire their responsible AI people last week or the week before, I think, in the layoffs. So apparently Google thinks it's still important. Yeah, the, the bot told them to fire the uh, ethics people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think, uh, for me at least, I think uh, transparency is probably the most important one. I think um, if, there, if there's going to be any kind of guidance around the use of AI, and especially generative text, which is really what everyone's talking about right now, is is that if you use it, um, you should you should declare that it was generated by a bot or that you're just speaking to a bot and not a person if it's a real chat. Because I think that will really... Uh, have the opportunity to, to mess with people if they think they're speaking to a person and it turns out they're not. You mean every time I go to a website and I have to fight with them to get to human, it, um, it's not a it's not a human, it's a bot on the other end. I'm just yelling at them to like figure out why my return didn't work or my package didn't show up. <laughs> yeah, in that case, it is actually a person, they're just being an ass. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you just found Ryan in customer support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have one of two moves. I either fake a broken internet connection or I, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. The person you have tried to reach is no longer available. You can't do driving through a tunnel anymore, Ryan. <laughs> oh, I can. Just no one buys it, but I don't care. <laughs> we you talk about Amazon returns specifically, Matt? Uh, it, it varies. Whatever uh, the wife has purchased that we need to return or gifts from families for the baby that, you know, are too small or, you know, 17 sizes too large. Those types of things. <laughs> yeah. Amazon returns are kind of weird. Like sometimes it's so easy. You literally go there and click it. Maybe they want you to return it. Maybe they don't. Other times it's, well, actually you've got to click this help page here and then you scroll down the page and then can you find the link to talk to a person? No, they send you to someplace else. It's, it's a real chore. Yeah, it really depends on if it's a third-party seller or not, and a bunch of things that tie into that. But uh, you know, actually, interesting. I saw it's not what we talk about the clubhouse normally, but <laughs> since you brought it up, uh, they're actually adding into uh, items that are returned frequently. They're adding a notification into the Amazon store, so you can do extra due diligence to make sure what you're buying is what you think it should be, which is fine right now. It's like that's nice, but then does that eventually end up impacting the return policy in the future? That would be kind of the question on that sort of things, but uh, interesting. Well, like you bought something knowing that it, that you might have to return it, and then you then you returned it. Yeah. It's going to cost you. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah. So I assume, that, I assume there's another shoe going to drop on that at some point, but right now they're just adding in the notification banner saying, hey, this item is regularly returned. So, uh, yeah, that'd be interesting. It's interesting, uh, you know, with the, with the prevalence of AI, uh, you know, in recent months now, you know, I'm learning about all kinds of AI startups I never knew existed. <laughs> so one this weekend I read about was uh, Replica. You guys heard of this one? Mm-hmm. Apparently the AI companion, who cares? Uh, and apparently uh, replicas uh, were designed by the founder to help uh, you know, her get over the death of someone close to her. And so they took their text messages and put them into an AI generative model. And then basically the bot sort of sounded like this person. But then that led into you can have a virtual companion. Uh, and then, of course, because it's a virtual companion, that turns into sex. And then... That was going to be a problem because they had to now protect the, the replicas from children. And then they decided that wasn't going to do so. They removed all of that. But apparently by doing that, they severed this human relationship that these people had established. And like you could get married to your replica, like in all these things, you know, weird, weird world of cyber internet culture that, you know, you always get a little concerned about. But yeah, that's the whole thing. And, uh, you know, I didn't know it existed. And I probably never would have known it existed uh, until, you know, AI became a big thing. And I was reading about some companies. And this is one that, Huge controversy because they removed the sexing feature. <laughs> so there you I'm go. sure something else would come along. <laughs> sure, something yeah. else will. And I and now I have like a new experiment to try with Bard. I'm like, I didn't try that. I don't know how that works. Isn't that like every sci-fi movie about like AI? Eventually, like I mean, everything into- everything on the internet always leads to yeah, you know, sex and pornography yeah. because that's what that's how growth happens and you know those things apparently. So there you go. Let's move to Azure, <laughs> shall we? Uh, so Microsoft uh, is telling us that the odds are stacked against cybersecurity professionals, which you know I love to be caught up on my vendor, first of all. Uh, and too often, though, they fight an asymmetric battle against prolific, relentless, and sophisticated attackers. And so Microsoft is bringing the power of AI to security at their inaugural Microsoft Secure event, which marries security with the power of OpenAI's GPT-4 generative AI into the Microsoft Security Copilot. Microsoft says Copilot is the first security product to enable defenders to move at the speed and scale of AI. And Security Copilot combines the advanced large language model with the security-specific model of Microsoft. Uh, I'd say more about what this thing is, uh, but there's so little in the announcement uh, that they actually have a video that I thought would maybe help shed more light into what this actually is. And then I watched the video, 
which basically is a big search box where you can ask the dumbest security questions ever. Like, what is log4j? And it gives you a summary description of what log4j is. And then like, the next question was, uh, you know, does it impact Windows? So you could ask a follow-up question. And they go, of course it doesn't impact Windows because Windows doesn't run log4j. Um, which is just not helpful. <laughs> now, if you could tell me, like, what of my machines have a log4j vulnerability, that would be kind of cool and something useful. Uh, and so I have declared this as the biggest piece of vaporware BS I've ever fucking seen. <laughs> so it is horrendous. Uh, like, and the fact that they're even trying to go out there and say this is a, f- a product is just ridiculous, Microsoft. I, I can't get the image out of my head of like Clippy wearing a badge saying, would you like to open a Sev1 incident? <laughs> you know, like, cause I, I just don't, I don't know like what they're expecting out of these things. Um, like I, I, I think this is a great opportunity. I mean, every security product for the last 10 years has been saying that they're modernizing an AI into their product and it's all just been sort of regex <laughs> regex. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I do think that there's a really good opportunity here, but it's, you know, like, uh, this isn't the way to go about it. Maybe, yeah, like, I you mean, know, co-pilot for code, like, in, in their GitHub product, right, for recommending more secure coding practices, you know, maybe automated, you know, security, you know, queries, generation, something like that. But this is terrible. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it has potential. Like, the idea is great. I'd love the idea of it, but... Just because you had a big partnership with OpenAI for billions of dollars doesn't mean every one of your products has to get AI in a bad way. Like, mm-hmm. can you can you actually make it a workable product, something that I actually want to use <laughs> before uh, you know we move into this world of yeah, we're gonna have BS AI products because that's just not helpful. Shame on you, Microsoft. I wish it well. I really hope that it, it gets developed and uh, we no longer have to work with real infosec people. <laughs> <laughs> I think the problem is I told my InfoSec people to listen to this cloud pod, so I should probably be careful what I say about them. <laughs> I mean, InfoSec people are great people. Um, they do need more tooling. They do need more help. They are overworked. I agree with all those things, uh, but this is just not not the solution to help them. So. What, what's actually interesting is the feature that you actually want of like, hey, what servers you know have the OpenSSL vulnerability that came out you know earlier this year or late last year slash the other one this year, you know, or some of these other things, like I know in Azure, you know, I had to go figure out in my infrastructure, if any of these things, and Azure actually has some decent tools, like running the Windows Defender agent, you know, and would go across my whole infrastructure and they had it out there quickly and was able just to run a quick query to say, okay, these ones are exposed or have this vulnerability and these ones don't. So it's like they need to kind of marry, you know, whatever they're doing over here with CodePilot and, you know, actually relate it to your infrastructure, not just like, hey, I am a junior person that just came out of college and is in InfoSec, you know, which is what it sounds like the product is. I haven't played with it and just been like, okay, here you go. Like it, it needs to actually start to, you know, tie things together, I feel like to really be useful to, you know, higher level people. I, I really think it's, it's value is just a natural language interface to the data you already have. Because, I mean, scanning for vulnerabilities, those are very deterministic things. And once you've got the data, you know, analyzing the data is, is a bit of a chore. So, you know, if you can ask the copilot a question in natural language to say, well, which of my servers have this version or which of my servers have this, it's just a way of report building using your voice instead of, you know, crystal reports or, you know, Tableau or anything else. 
Oh, which would be fine, right? Like if the insights were, you know, had ML powered learning and you could do stuff like, you know, trend the, you know, remediation time of incidents and, and use that kind of thing. But it's not really quite AI. Like when I think about AI, it's generating, you know, either query content or, or proactively, you know, not only running the report, but drafting it. Like, and, you know, like that's really what I want to see is, is, you know, these products sort of like, you know, augment existing, you know, security analysts and help them, you know, in their environments. Yeah, I guess you want to be a little more proactive. You don't have to ask your questions. Do I have this mm-hmm. vulnerability? Do I have that vulnerability? It's like, well, assess my system and tell me what you think. Like, give me. <laughs> yeah, monitor the, the CVE, you know, RSS feed and, you know, proactively do a thing. Right. That's what I want. Yeah, it could even be that you accept some level of risk for for some versions of things, but you don't want it to be an excessive um, number of servers that run it or, you know, particular use cases like internal only but not customer facing or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Determine a risk score based on, you know, application exposure and, and functionality and, you know, a whole bunch of things that I don't know how you train the model to, to do that to, to customer specific workloads, but. How cool would that be to be like, yeah, this isn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. The computer says it's fine. So you essentially need a company, individual company-based risk assessment. And then from there, mm-hmm. you know, say, hey, look, these are how I rate A, B, C, D. You know, and now go tell me, cool, this is a, you know, seven on the CVE score. But now how do we actually make this, you know, is this actually critical? Oh, no, this vulnerability is on an internal worker node that just grabs files and processes it. The odds of it getting attacked in this other way that really isn't there, it probably is not a high criticality. So it doesn't need to be patched out of cycle. Yeah. yeah, the key thing here on all of this is actually reminds me of an article I read on, on Monday um, from Steve Yeg. And we talked about Steve in the past here on the show. He's the guy who wrote the, uh, the blog post about how terrible Google is at platforms versus Amazon. Uh, and he, you know, he was at AWS early in, the, in their creation as well. Uh, but he's now a, a CTO or VP of engineering at Sourcegraph. Uh, but he had a whole article called Cheating is All You Need. I'll just put it in the show notes. So it'll, it'll be there for those looking for it. But he actually talks about the um, the need in ChatGPT, you know, in, in all these GPT-4 and all these things is how do you give it the hints about what you actually want or the context of it. And so he talks about, you know, about how their pro- company actually does that um, is one of the key, key ways to be able to provide as much data as possible. Uh, to give you the right insights back, but you know it's interesting because that's what you're actually you know saying is that you need more context in your AI model to actually provide the answers that we really want from a tool like Copilot. So uh, this is a good you know article to read about kind of his perspective on it too, which I think is valid. I didn't have a good way to put it into the main show notes to talk about, <laughs> but uh, you guys just gave it to me, so perfect. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> we're done really well. But uh, it's welcome. a good article and, and worth reading through. Uh, when you guys have some time later tonight, but um, you know he talks quite a bit about uh, you know how do you solve this for coding assistance in particular, and and the way to make a coding assistant better is to actually give it more of your code, <laughs> so it can actually then build the model off of your code and and then have context of variables and and APIs and how you're passing data through them, uh, and then it goes into how they have a product called Cody that helps you try to do this, uh, which you can buy from them, which of course you want to, but uh, yeah, interesting, yeah, little segue there. I mean, that, it's, that's how they're going to monetize AI, right? It's going to be that model customization, you know, where it's going to be more of a platform that, of model generation that's very specific so that you can provide that context. And, you know, with allowing enough, you know, hooks to fetch public stuff where it doesn't get too biased in any one direction, probably. But 
it's going to be interesting to see how that the market works all that out. Yeah, for sure. All right, moving on to uh, more talk about Microsoft Azure AI services. Uh, Microsoft is really on a roll again, you know, Copilot. Uh, but they also had to tell you this week that uh, Azure AI for the third week in a row is generally available, uh, and this time. <laughs> It's available for ISVs. If you didn't think you could use it before, you can now. So, uh, Microsoft, too much, too much. You're you're over you're <laughs> overplaying the hand. It's time to take a step back. Maybe during the Copilot thing and then this announcement, I'm like, I was reading it. And I was like, what? You guys announced Azure AI last week, and then it was like, oh, but for ISVs, and I was like, that is just shenanigans. Come on, guys. <laughs> so, called it out. Calling you out, Microsoft, twice. Yeah. One episode. That's terrible. That's a bad track record. You don't want that. That's Oracle level hate. <laughs> I had half a mind when reading the GCP thing that the only reason they were talking about the responsible AI and, and when they brought it out it was just so they could remind everyone that they were first, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> that, but it did feel that way in the article. Like, just remind you, we came out with the first version of this in 2008. Like, mm, okay, thanks. Yeah, so it does seem like the hyperscalers are all sort of like trying to, you know, stake their claim in the AI space. Yep. Everyone, everyone's going to have an AI feature this year. And they're all going to be terrible, and they're going to go through trough of disillusionment, and no one's going to, everyone's going to hate AI for a couple of years, and then they'll come out with really awesome solutions. Then all of a sudden, we'll be back in love with it. I'm sure that's how these things cycle through. Uh, well, I did find one actual announcement though from Azure this week. Uh, Matt, did you say something? Sorry, I was going to say it's just like the, all the Bitcoin announcements and blockchain announcements a couple of years ago. Everyone had to get one out the door, and I feel like I don't think I've heard anything about them in. Three, four years, something like that. Well, point? I mean, the trough of disillusionment around Bitcoin is pretty low right now. I mean, if you might have heard oh, a little yeah. company called FTX recently. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're no, real like- bad, but it'll come back. It'll come back at some point. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect, only to have them be poached at the eleventh hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring. Well, I have a simple solution, Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. All right, well, I did find a real story from Azure. So they did actually announce something. They announced Azure Virtual Network Manager or AVNM because Microsoft loves their acronyms. Uh, AVNM works through a process of grouping, configuring, and deploying. You'll be able to group your network resources across subscriptions, regions, and even tenants, and configure the kind of connectivity and security you want among your grouped network resources. And finally, you can deploy those configurations the network group in whichever and however many regions you would like, all through the new AVNM solution. This is really just IAM, right? In sheep's clothing, like... If you you can group these network things just so you can target them with permission policies, you mm-hmm. can restrict you know a subscription meant for only dev workloads to only use certain groups. And I mean, it's, it's nice. It's a it's a great way to sort of build your service catalog, if you will, of of things and and publish that as part of your infrastructure. 
Yeah, but they have, they have examples in here of like, hey, you can use it to force allowing traffic to and from monitoring services or domain controllers. I'm like, mm-hmm. mm, I, I see why you want to do that, but I also don't know that I want you to force that on people. <laughs> so uh, with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, th- those are the decisions you have to make with the cloud. Yeah, with as running a cloud platform, like the, you got to make that trade-off, right? Like, I don't want everyone to know how all the sausage is made and, and invent their own wheels, and, but at the, at the same time, you don't also want to solve for all use cases and have one way to do things. It's tricky. This this feature actually is something that is interesting for me because we have our product launch in so many different countries due to different you know country regulations, GDPR, UK, India is launching their own you know data has to live locally um, policy shortly. So you know this is interesting because one of the things I'm looking at doing is kind of retrofitting some of our environments and. You know, stepping up some of the more network level security. Um, we have a decent, but you know, I want to bring it to the next level. And th- something like this is something I can do, and then let developers go try to break everything they want and not let them, you know, affect anything else. Got it. So, how, in general, how do you find networking with Azure as compared with AWS or GCP? Some things are good, some things are not. Um, you know, luckily, a lot of the base network has already was already laid down as the pro, as you know at my day job. The product's been there for a little while. Um, you know, the some of the things that you know I'm used to of the security groups and the knackles all just fall into the NSG rules in Azure, at least as far as I understand thus far. Um, you know, and I'm used to having kind of two levers as needed, even though I told never told a customer to ever use a knackle before. Um, you know, but you know, it, it, I'm still learning a little bit more about it. Um, it's just nice that it all was there for me, and you know, I'm now dealing with kind of the higher level stuff in the application. I may kind of circle back to some of the infrastructure stuff at the you know networking level later on, but it seems decent thus far. Um, I, but with everything Azure, there's tiers of everything, which is always fun and confusing. And there's always that one feature you need that makes you have to go from the one that's like, oh, a couple hundred dollars a month to a couple thousand dollars a month in the true Microsoft you know, methodology. And next week on the podcast, uh, Ultra Premium, Matt, will be showing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we charge extra for that. Yeah. <laughs> and all it gets you is integration into your VNet. Perfect. Sign me right up for that premium sure. Ultra networking AVM. All right, well, Oracle is back this week again, and they're slinging mud once again, but this time only at AWS. Last week, we talked about uh, them slinging mud at GCP, Azure, and AWS, but uh, this time they went after serverless. And guess what, guys? It saves more money on OCI. I know you're shocked. Faster, better, cheaper, right? Yeah. Uh, First, uh, Oracle, in their comparison of serverless on AWS and serverless on Oracle, compares, you know, points out that they're not exactly identical. Uh, bashing AWS for the fact that Lambda's proprietary and lock-in, of course, is normal one move, where OCI functions are based on the open source project, FN Project, which means you can create portable applications that can easily be run in other clouds and on-premise environments. Uh, so first, uh, that's the first strike against Lambda, is that it's a closed source. Second strike, uh, their free tier is 2 million functions versus AWS Lambda's 1 million functions. Uh, and then, of course, they hit them for strike three, which was region pricing bashing, because you know other regions are more expensive. But they did compare this one on US East 1 and OCI. And the first scenario they gave us, uh, oh, sorry, but the uh, requests per million are only the, are the same 20 cents uh, per million. <laughs> so I'm not really sure I care about the free tier being 20 cents versus 40 cents. 
you know, personally, but uh, that's uh, important. Uh, but overall, they do show that their duration prices are 18% less than AWS. Uh, and they've given us two scenarios to take a look at. The first one is an image processing scenario with a use case. Uh, function is triggered each time an image is uploaded to object storage. And let's say that they load 2 million images a month and their 256 megabit function takes 90 seconds to run, which fails all of my API uh, SLAs, but I don't know about yours. Uh, <laughs> this works out to uh, $743.53 for AWS and only $631.98 for OCI. Uh, scenario B is a security system that collects temperature, vibration, and proximity sensor posts uh, and updates them 50 million times a month, each time invoking a 1 gigabit function that takes uh, half a second to run. And in that scenario, AWS was $419.80 and Oracle was $358.18. Uh, apparently, both services offer a way to minimize cold starts, which I did not know about OCI. Uh, and OCI uh, for that capability is also 18% cheaper than AWS. Uh, again, you know, this is a you know nice. So you can save 18%, move your function to Oracle. Um, or you could just buy savings plan, which would save you 17%, which is basically a wash. So <laughs> I love Oracle leaving out the facts. Again, do your own research. Don't listen to Oracle for everything. But, uh, you know, again, nice to see a comparison. Just wish it was more factual. I do find it funny, like they're the touting of the, you know, we're open source and you can use this anywhere, where the only reason the open source project exists is because of Lambda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, why does this thing exist in the world? Oh, because Lambda existed. Same thing with K-Native. It's sort of the same thing. Like, well, that's because Lambda was a thing. Yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of funny. And, you know, like, I do think that it, there's some value in in sort of standardizing on, on some primitives and allowing that sort of portability. But I also have never used one that touted that, that I didn't have to then also inject something specific to that platform. So, like, I'm sure it's a YAML file because everything's a YAML file and you define things a certain way. And I bet you money there's at least some values when using the OCS or the OCI platform that you that are specific to that deployment just through the nature of it. And so, like, I don't get that, you know, that claim when, you know, it's true for any any cloud managed version of anything. Yeah, I don't personally care that it's not open source. It's a service that I consume through an API. Mm-hmm. It does a thing. I pay for it. If it breaks, they fix it. Mm-hmm. It's what, what more do implementation want? details of how I configure that. You know how I assign, you know, memory and CPU resources and runtime attributes. Like if I define it in a YAML or CloudFormation, like you know, or you know, like it's it just seems sort of not that valuable. I'm also that- looking at their GitHub project, and I think the last time they have a release of the FN FN project slash FN is 2019. So I guess my question is, how active is this project, or are they just leveraging you know older technology, or have they forked it and now are you know kind of making it be proprietary without you know giving all those details? I mean, there's not a lot to it, right? Like it's a it's a container. Yeah, I just <laughs> in, in I assume there'd be some security update or something yeah. in the last yeah. three and a half years. Yeah. Uh, well, so I'm just doing some quick, quick googling because I was trying to chase that down just because it was my question that popped in my too. Like, where does this effing thing? Uh, Oracle owns it. <laughs> they bought the project. <laughs> of course they do. 
That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, it's open source, but it's not really uh, open source. Because uh, I was like, why wouldn't they just use Knative? Like, what? This makes right. no sense to me. Why? Like, this project I've never heard of. Uh, but yeah, FN uh, is the fruit of Oracle's move to hire the team behind of IronIO, which uh, was a cube who created FN. So they basically aren't. So you Thank go. you for the research. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Half-ass internet research in five seconds. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to our cloud journey series, uh, which you know Matthew comes in cold to. So last week we kicked off uh, our latest version of it, uh, which is all about cloud native and uh, cloud native patterns. And so last week we kind of did a deep dive on what is cloud native, what makes it special, why do you care about it, etc. And this time we're going to dive deep into microservices and containers because the first thing you should know is that to be cloud native, you don't have to be in a container, nor do you have to be a microservice, but they do help. <laughs> so first of all, uh, what are microservices and how do they differ from monolithic architecture? Who wants to start? I can start. So I think uh, we're going to have uh, contentious arguments about microservices like we did last week again. I don't know. I think so. But, <laughs> I'm geared up for war now. Uh, for me, at least, <laughs> I mean, the, the idea of microservices is, is more of an architectural style of, of, of building a service whereby um, you, you deploy or you, you, you create um, small applications independent of each other, independent services um, that communicate with each other through well-defined APIs. Each each microservice has a very specific business purpose and they can be deployed and scaled independently of all the others. All right, fine, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I I agree, but I also think that a microservice doesn't have to be extremely specific. So some people will say a microservice is like, Hey, here's a piece of data and it returns it. Um, you know, I also think a microservice can just be, hey, these are this is my API layer, like, and it's completely isolated from the front end and back end. And while it's not a true or you know as tight and as small as a microservice, it is can be like a smaller layer inside of a multi-layered environment. So it, it to me that maybe. It, Maybe that's a middle layer somewhere between a microservice and a monolithic, but like to me, that is a type of microservice. Of it, like you said, really to me, it's the second half. It's an isolated piece of your infrastructure that can be built independent and deployed independent of everything else, scaled, monitored, etc. It's more fun when we disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I can I kind of, you know, like it's one of those things where it's 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 a, it's on a spectrum, right? I've seen people do microservices that are just really sort of extending a monolith, and I've seen people do microservices um, that are basically a function wrapped up in an API um, that just you know does some ETL on a JSON string and returns it, and it's just like, well, why? You, you know, like you, there are limits to to the ends of the spectrum, and there are pros and cons of choosing, and you have to sort of figure out your architecture. Um, based on those requirements, right? The scaling, the the blast radius, the the ownership, the that sort of thing, and it's you know like it, there's not going to be a right answer or one answer there. So you're saying is that microservices could be helpful, but do they need to be in containers to be helpful as a microservice, or do you think that's uh, an area no. where there's some flexibility? I'll start. No. I don't. I yeah. think no. I don't think they need to be. I mean, you could have. 
a microservice, one that runs on a pass. You know, in theory, you could just have an API layer or a single API that runs in Beanstalk or Azure App Services. You know, it's still a thing. It's just not in a container. You know, it's its own isolated thing. You, in theory, could even have a microservice. Maybe if you need enough compute or something along those lines that runs on you know ten thousand servers that scale up and down. You know, but it still kind of meets that qualification that Jonathan said of, you know. It can scale independently, is is independent of everything else. So like, sure, it's great if it's on a container and it has other advantages and other disadvantages if it's on a container, but definitely doesn't have to be on a container. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we as an industry, we've sort of forgotten that containers are really made to make it easier to package and deliver software. <laughs> they're not really they're not really necessary for anything else. And then we added Kubernetes to it and then everything became monolithic inside Kubernetes. So you know, Kubernetes is the new monolith uh, in many ways, but uh, you know it, it definitely. There's people who are very religious about this. That microservices have to be microservices. Monolithic is dead, and you know if it's a microservice, then you must be in containers to get ex, uh, you know acceleration of innovation, and you know that's the path that a lot of people tout. And I know I've said this words before too, so even I've said it, <laughs> but not because I believe that containers are required for it. It's really more about fixing CI/CD um, at the end of the day. And the containers yeah. do help for that, you know, but like you said, it's really delivering the artifact and getting that single thing out there and functional. And that single piece is what is the microservice. And it might just be a zip file you deploy to, you know, a, a service and that service handles it all for you. And probably behind the scenes, they're running it in a container. But, you know, again, it's all just a thing that is deployed. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think anything about the the definition of a microservice doesn't mean that it can't be, you know, a load balancer fronted by a compute instance that's accessing a database. I think the important part is that, you know, you, it's defining its boundaries, it's defining its construction, and it is able to to scale and move and be developed independently of its integration, of, you know, external dependencies. Right, because I think that's really the important part that people often miss. Like when we think about why we're doing something else besides the monolith, right? It's because you know it required coordination of nine teams to get a simple um, API version, you know, change because it was using a, a DLL run by this team, which is imported by this other team, and you know this other team was in the flow, and it's all in one giant repo, and it's all just one build, and we can only release twice a year. You know, and so containers are often confused with that because they, they, you know, CIC allows a lot of speed, but they're really, you know, I, in a lot of ways think of containers more as package management than, than a runtime. Cause I see a lot of it. I see a lot more advantages at that layer. I mean, resource utilization has always been one of the, been sort of touted as one of the benefits of containers though, because you can pack these containers in to a few number of nodes and, um, and he sort of magically saves you, you know, 50 cents on your bill at the end of the month. Do you, do you think that's a reasonable kind of selling point or not so much really at scale? I think it depends on how much you own the own destiny. If you're, you know, managing the Kubernetes platform itself, are you, are you saving any money? No, you know, you're still running that, right? Are you shifting, if you're a developer team who's, you know, running a workload on a provided Kubernetes cluster, you're shifting the responsibility to that team. That's great. Um, and so, like, I, I think it really depends on how you do it. And, 
I think it's also where a lot of teams hang themselves out to dry too, is because it's like, oh, well, we don't have to really consider the the resource constraints, um, you know, of, of how these things are doing it. And so, you know, it's, it's all fine and good until you have an, a noisy neighbor within your cluster that's using up all the CPU. And now you now those weights that you sort of just defaulted or glanced over when you deployed your service are super important. Um, and so like, it's, it's just moving a lot of the same things around. We've been thin provisioning VMs for ages, right? Like it's, it's no different. Um, and so it's just, you know, another, another arose by another name, I guess. Maybe perhaps it's just one of those interesting concepts, right? Um, so thinking about, you know, microservices and containers, um, you know, what were the advantages of using them in a cloud native architecture in particular, tying it back to our series? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it was the, you know, moving away from the monolith really to take advantage and, and make that make sense was CI CD, right? And the the container story for CI CD has always been very tightly intertwined. It's a, you know, for a developer, they can develop that Docker container locally, they can push that through a pipeline and get it all the way into the production. And so I, I really do think that it 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 takes advantage of all those, you know, of a lot of the deploy and maintenance of a microservice. And then, you know, cloud native, all the cloud hyperviders are geared towards supporting those technologies, right? There's, everyone has their own container platform or their ability to sort of manage that. It's very um, common these days. And and even a migration path where you deploy, you containerize it in your data center and then move it into the cloud, right? Because you're sort of packaging it up in a cloud native way, right? There's, there's a lot of overlap in that story. I think scale to zero or very close to zero is a, is a pretty big advantage overnight. If, if you have very, um, very sort of time-based or predictable usage patterns, you can scale to almost costing you nothing when you're not really doing your core business hours. So thinking, uh, about, you know, this path, like how would you approach this? What tools would you leverage? How would you think about CICD for these microservices and containers and, and then moving that into that cloud native architecture? How does it all stitch together? How do we, how do we piece that together for our listeners? Well, I think me and Jonathan still have to arm wrestle on what we, what we think cloud native actually is, right? So it's hard <laughs> uh, until that battle royale is, is addressed. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it, I do think that it's, you know, it's important to just look at the business advantages you're trying to achieve, right? Like it's, it's all fine and good to play with a new shiny tool. Um, that's a lot of fun. I spend the majority of my time doing that. Um, but it doesn't mean much and it will, won't really be adopted if you can't make it make sense to the business. So are you trying to gain velocity? Or are you trying to achieve cost savings? Are you trying to, you know, put out a better product and short your iteration time? Um, and, you know, there's different, there's a lot of different tools, you know, that have differing levels of entry level pain <laughs> to do that, right? It's, you know, it's really easy to run Docker and just, you know, expose that natively. You can even run that as part of your, you know, just directly on your compute node a lot of ways. And so if your CIC is your main goal, maybe that's an option if you already have that ecosystem. You know, everyone's choosing Kubernetes because, you know, it's the new hotness. It's not so new anymore. I mean, it's still everybody's fanboy of Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody, you know, every project I've right here is like, what about Kubernetes? And it's like, oh, yeah. okay. Still the solve all, that's for sure. 
Yeah. And then once you get it, then they want, then they want Istio and service mesh, and then they want, you know, something else. And then they want stateful data. Then they want to run SQL server on top of Kubernetes, which I desperately want to do. And you guys all don't want no. to do. So no, sweet God. No, <laughs> I would Please say, stop recommending that. I would say I died a little bit of the inside, but I've had to talk people out of that, of running stateful SQL databases on top of Kubernetes more times than I care to count. Can you start with him? Like, <laughs> <laughs> which one's him? Hold on. <laughs> Justice brings it up like once a quarter. Hey, what about this idea? And, the, uh, and all of us are just looking at him and glare now. <laughs> Next week, we'll just have an intervention. Never mind. Never yeah. mind. The, the, news story, the news stories. <laughs> Why is this a terrible idea? No, I, I, I acknowledge that it's probably not a great idea, but we're going to have to try it just because otherwise, you know, like. Yeah, what like once I see wrong? it fails in horrible fire, like it was like Windows yeah. containers. Like we, we all sort of like, well, we could try it, and then we try it. And we're like, this is bad. No, yeah, no, yeah, we should not yeah. do this. Uh, Why? Because it takes like an hour on AWS to boot up a ECS cluster just for a hello world and you know, IS site versus like ten minutes on, you know, Linux and uh, Nginx. I'll have any mm-hmm. scar tissue around that one. <laughs> Worked really good though. yeah like ryan said originally to go back to the question i mean really it's what you what are you trying to you know what are you trying to do what's the business objective here you know do you want container i mean microservices containers i feel like kind of get used interchangeably but they're not really things that are interchangeable in my head you know one is a tool that helps you achieve the other so you know containers help you achieve or let me rephrase that. Containers can help you achieve microservices if you don't, you know, build a full monolith in a container, um, which definitely no one has ever done before. Um, you know, and it really, it's what you're trying to achieve here. Like, and how do you want to achieve it? Do you want to, you know, if you are taking a monolithic and you know starting your journey to split it apart, you know, do you want to go containers? Okay, cool. Then there's the, you know all the container t- tools that you know you know, about Docker, Podman, Kubernetes, you know, whatever you want to actually make it work, you know, or do you want to just go to a past product and potentially, you know, pay the cloud provider to help you with some of these things and just give them zip files of your you know, application and be able to run these things? Or is it a Lambda and just here's my Lambda, here's my zip file, you know, go run it for me, you know, in whatever the cloud that you're running it, you know, so... It really, you have to look at like what you're what you're trying to achieve, and then what the skill set of the employees of the company are, in order to actually figure out wh- how to do it. So, like, it'd be great, you know. I remember a conversation I had years ago with like, "Hey, if you could build something, you know, straight up, brand new, with you know whatever you want, you know, what's the best thing?" You know, you know, I I asked one of my coworkers at the time, and their response was, "Well, it varies." After years of doing this, you know, I fully understand why the answer is it varies because it just depends what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to achieve just, hey, go run this thing and we're not going to update it? It's going to probably be something fairly static. Or is it something that we want to iterate over quickly and we're going to have 30 developers working on it? And how do we build out, you know, a proper workflow for all these things? So, you know, it, it would be great if there was a silver bullet, but then, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably. I will say that if, you know, in that latter scenario, if I get the chance to do that again, I'm going to, I am going to choose a much more declarative solution rather than freeform, like something that, you know, like, uh, you know, OpenShift or, or Harness or Argo CD, you know, like something that is very like, this is, 
this is your entry point. This is how you develop on this thing. This is how you promote it to the next level. This is how you have to name it. And here's, here's your fancy UI that lets you see your entire production pipeline. Um, just because I, one of the mistakes I've made in the past is, is to sort of underestimate people's understanding or translation of, are, have we met, do we have a meeting in the minds and what continuous delivery is and, and what we're trying to achieve with that. And it's, it's something that is, it's, it, I've found is easy to have what seems like an agreement and then the details, it gets lost and it's sort of a, a challenge. I guess that's kind of the difference between just having a bunch of tools available to use and having a coherent platform mm-hmm. and, you know, a, and a strategy and have this is how you use it and this is our offering. It's great to say his Kubernetes have at it and, and, and that's, that's been a huge problem for years. But actually uh, productionizing Kubernetes in general is, is very difficult. And there are different concerns, right? Running a very sophisticated application in production. Nice catch. Uh, is, you know, is a different concern for deployment velocity. And, you know, I think there's different patterns for that. And it, I think there's room within an organization for both. Well, great. Next week, we're going to talk more about Kubernetes. <laughs> or maybe we'll do something else. We'll talk about it later. But because uh, <laughs> uh, we did cover Kubernetes a couple of times tonight. Mm-hmm. But uh, my, uh, Matthew's microphone's giving up the ghost. So I think it's a good time to wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to look up. I was talking with one of my old employees a few weeks ago. He moved uh, to a new company and was working on, I can't remember the name of the platform um, that he helped build. Uh, I think I wanted to say it was called Backplane, um, which was his whole, you know, which was he was developing a platform for his company where, you know, hey, you just literally give it the repo. You put a couple of these files in there. And will automatically build the, you know, the Argo CD pipeline for the container deployment for to dev, you know, with all the gates and controls and everything. And I believe the technology was backplane, um, but I'm not not 100% sure. And turns out trying to type when you're talking around a microphone can be difficult at times. So. <laughs> all good. Well, thanks, guys. We'll talk to you all next week here on the Clap Pod. Thanks, Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.